think back to those days in life when the world was not so much of a rat race of responsibility. When life was what you made of it. When imagination took over rational thought and stole you away from the hassle of modern living. Remember those times when you and your friends were not regular, everyday people, but fantastic warriors of light and darkness, cowboys on the open frontier, or secret government agents on a mission that always threatened your lives. When heroes stood tall, capes waving in the wind with the spoils of victory glistening like sunshine in their eyes. Villains vanquished only to return for another adventure in your minds. This is the moment when we are free of the truths that plague our reality. This is when we are whoever we have always wanted to be. This is role-playing. This is System Mastery. Welcome to System Mastery. It's time for us to dig into one of the weird old books of role-playing. Uh, I am John, your host, and again, this week, Jeff is off with baby duty, so I have another super special guest host with me. This time, it's Quinn! Hello, everyone. I'm happy to be everybody's second favorite replacement fat bisexual co-host. <laughs> yeah! You just need a beard, and then I can get rid of Jeff altogether. Damn. I'll never be able to grow one. I've tried. <laughs> I've tried so hard. It's beyond my grasp. <laughs> I'll never catch up to Jeff. Damn. Damn him! Kakarot! <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, you might remember Quinn from our Gamma Crawl X series that we did as our wonderful GM. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Something Creator like that. of Deadstone. Uh, he also, if you, uh, remember from when Josette was here last time, he is the GM for the Swallows of the South podcast as well. I do run that. I have... So much fun doing it for you guys. And, and uh, you got, like, way too much other crap that you also do. I do. So I'm going to go ahead and just throw one specific plug out here to hashtag TTRPG Foucault memes. A very short-lived hashtag that I made uh, mixing my love of tabletop RPGs with the postmodernist theoretical stylings of Michel Foucault. <laughs> Good. I am uh, super glad about that. Don't worry about the other stuff. That's the one I want you to look at. That's it. None of my other creative endeavors no. mean anything. Don't worry about the project that I do with John and Josette. Don't worry about Gamma Crawl. Just the Foucault memes. <laughs> uh, so this week we have, from the intro, you didn't really get much. That is a passage from the book that we have read. It is... 713 Cycle of Existence. An ill portent of things to come, I assure you. <laughs> that passage from the What is Role Playing is definitely one of my favorite versions of that in any of the books I've read. I've never read one of those that seemed to be so exquisitely up its own ass. <laughs> I've read a lot that 
get on their soapbox and talk about how important and magical this is, but never something quite that bad. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've had games where it's like, back to the days of cavemen where they would paint on walls, the art of storytelling, and you're like, okay, I get it. I get that this is a a proud part of the history and tradition of storytelling. That's good. Thank you. Right. But here he's telling you to cast away your mental shackles and be free in the light of role-playing. It's okay. As a child, you were free. And now, with 713's cycle of existence, you can be a child again. Oh boy, this book has a thing for children on too many levels. <laughs> oh god, the uh the book itself is like 300 pages long and top to bottom nonsense. Like this is this is a book where we could probably do two whole episodes on it. It's worthy of a deep dive. It's one of those books where every time a question is raised, it provides a sort of evasive answer, like perhaps a press secretary might provide to a a cutting question asked of them. It is fumbling around some sort of vague central point, but it never actually pins it down and leaves you with about seven other questions. Oh yeah, the even before it gets to the like what is a role playing game and everything else, the book starts with like about 20 pages of the world you know is just perception, but perception is reality. However, reality is not what you perceive. And you're like, oh my fuck, shut up. It's really, really bad. You get about three pages of things that are ostensibly parsable. He says, or the book says, here are some ideas about the structure of the world, which are complete bullshit. Oh, it's yeah. very, very weird. He cuts it up into three portions. There's your cities, there's your small towns, and then there's everything in between. <laughs> uh, it's like feudal society, but modern, but not like you think. The kings don't live in castles of Albion and Normandy. They are in castles of Starbucks and Microsoft. Yep. Uh, that's a thing they said in this book, so <laughs> buckle up. This book has thoughts <laughs> it has some opinions some ideas that it needs it honestly the first 20 pages of this reads like i went to a crazy person's blog about time travel yes because after those first three pages where you can follow along at least what proper nouns are being used well yeah i mean at least those pages it's up its own ass but in the same way that like World of Darkness was up its own ass about, like, the world you know is not the real world, and monsters stalk the darkness. Right. I looked at the publication date on this book, 2006. That's right around the time the old World of Darkness was spinning down, and they were starting to publish in full force, like, the NWOD. So I got a sense that maybe this is a little bit reactionary. But then you get 17 pages of proper nouns with no definition or even context provided to them, except for their arcane relation to other proper nouns that you have no idea what they are. It's it's like starting to read the Dark Tower series from Stephen King at book four, and you're like, I don't get anything that you are talking about. Like, this book is like, the 12 towers are here, and the 12 hours chime, and they can change reality, but perhaps the 13th hour? And you're like, what the... 
What does that mean? The 13th hour arrives only at critical points in history and provides a decisive shifting point. There will be no examples, thank you. <laughs> what does that mean? Oh, no. Well, we've got too much to go through. Save your questions till the end. Also, I will not answer I will them. not answer any questions. <laughs> Keep up. Uh, it, it has this thing about the new world and the old world, and... It keeps talking about like, oh, the old world has these gods and there's light and dark and balance and the new world has forgotten it and it's cities of glass. And then it doesn't tell you what the fuck it means by the new world and the old world? No, you get the sense that the old world is some sort of like prelapsarian version of society or reality that is more real than the reality we live in today. Well, yeah, sort of like the the world of darkness thing where you're like, oh, the old world would be like vampires and the new world is people who think that vampires are a myth. But when you read to the very end of the book, you're like, oh no, there's a literal other dimension that is the old world that has its own name and is like a fantasy setting outside of Earth. But you shouldn't play there. All of the examples of play in this are just like, oh, you're in a city and that city is garbage, except for the homeless people who are the stand-in for, like, noble savages in this game, and the quiet dignity of having nothing. And then also the police are there, and the police downtown, they might seem cruel, but it's the only way to keep order. And I was like, oh, you motherfucker did not just say that. Oh, yeah. Look, I just did 200 milligrams of Adderall. I've watched <laughs> The Wire, and I've read Neverwhere, and I'm here to fucking party. <laughs> Oh my god, everything in that first 20 pages talking about this setting just infuriated me. And it was actually physically exhausting. I had to step up, put the book down, and walk away a couple times because it was so much. Oh yeah, I my basic way of reading this book was like, okay, I'm going to read a chapter... And then I'm going to go do something for like at least a half hour and then I'll come back and read another chapter. And I couldn't even do that with the first chapter that was like the setting material that it wants to present you with to start with. I got through like maybe five to ten pages and went, no, I cannot keep doing this to my brain. Right. What is an Asanalea in the Reich stage? I don't know. And the Reichstag? me. There's a point where it starts talking about light and dark and balance and what that is. Oh, boy. And at first you're like, oh, light, dark, and balance. I get it. There's, you know, the good guys, the bad guys, and then people who are like, oh, I want everything to be even because too much of one or the other would be bad. Everything in moderation, kids. Except it's basically like, what's the light? Oh, they're super kind and they're great at defense and helping people in the dark is super aggressive and mean and evil. And the balance is basically the light, but also aggressive. Right. The light, but they'll punch a Nazi. It explicitly says the light won't get down. They won't start a fight. They won't kill anybody. And they're like, balance, they'll do what needs to be done. They definitely still hate the dark. So I don't know why they're called balance. But I read that and I'm like, oh, cool. So balance is who you should be playing, right? Yeah, it was like, oh, well, Light is the sort of armchair liberal good guy who's like, you know, I think if people just, you know, 
politely protest without hurting anyone, then things will change. And the dark is horrible assholes. And then the balance is like, no, nah, let's go out and do stuff. Radical praxis. Yeah. <laughs> it's getting out there and is like, yo, motherfucker, it's time to throw some trash cans. Yeah. So it it lays this out. Each of these has an associated god. And I'm going to tell everyone listening to this right up front right here. I remember almost none of the proper nouns because there were 400 of them. <laughs> and they all sounded so made up. Oh, yeah. All of them are very shitty fantasy names, but they kept using more and more. So instead of being like, here's a here's a key like five to ten that you need to keep in your head, they're like, oh, don't worry. We're going to mention a name and then not again for like 50 pages, and then maybe we'll mention it once more because we got other names to get through. Right. Dark, for example, is heavily associated with the Leviathan who seems to be some sort of world eater or, like, entropic entity. He's but he, also, like a weird Satan, but also Sauron, because he has, like, the Twelve Towers. He has his eye of the Leviathan above the Twelve Towers. Right. And then the God of Darkness, I'm not sure if it is Leviathan, or if, like, Levi-Athan is a moniker he takes on because he's associated? Oh, no. It wasn't clear. That's one of the fates, and the two fates, one of them is like, I'm I'm super into being a decent person, and the other one is like, I'm the bad boy of fate, and I wear, like, a leather jacket and a torn-up t-shirt and jeans, and my... My name is, like, Mar Kalothanhan, but I go by Levi Athen because I'm a huge douche. I'm Loki, but but somehow crustier. <laughs> I'm, that, I'm that Loki that you do not want to fuck. Yep. This book, by the way, is phenomenally good at just being crusty. So much in this book is crusty as hell. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of crust punk going on in here. But not the fun kind. And that that makes me so sad. I want that fun crust. Yeah, fun crust. I want fun crust. Not like Uncrustables. No. You know what? Big Smuckers, it's time that you go down. I'm here for Big Jam. It's time <laughs> for you to get out. You and your crust-hating ways. How dare you? Next thing you know, you're going to be coming into my home telling me how to fuck my wife. <laughs> my wife. My wife. Ugh. So, yeah, moving past the first 20 pages, <laughs> you get into the start of what this game has to offer you, and it's a lot of weird shit. It starts with that passage of what is role-playing. I, I mean, I read that and went, okay, well, after the intro... A lot of times, a book will have an intro that's like, look, I'm just doing this in the prose that I want the tone of the game to be. And I'm like, okay, you have a weird, fucked up, crazy setting that you want to do, and so you started this off with a crazy person's perspective on the world. That's fine. Now that we're past that, you can go ahead and explain to me what's happening. And no. No, it does not drop. He keeps it up the whole time. And I say he... Because Christopher Ash is credited heavily throughout this book, I believe as the sole author. 
Oh, yeah, confirm that. It's one of those books where you look through the credits and you see the same name like 12 times and go, ooh, yeah, you had no oversight. You were just doing this. Yes, so he was the writing and design only person on that. He was one of the concept art and illustration people. He was one of the quote-unquote interior interior models, and that's the, the end of his credits on this wonderful book that he has created. Also, I have to say, the interior art that he is uh, credited with, I assume, came from his Beginner's Guide to How to Draw Anime. There's a lot of early 2000s ass how to draw manga stuff in here. Oh, yeah. It is real, like, that book, that how to draw anime characters book is so heavy in this yep. that you're like, oh, yeah, I know that you had that on your shelf and we're like, how do I make a young fuckable kid in anime? Yeah, half of these illustrations would be easily at home in, like, Big Eye Small Mouth or one of the low-tier, quickly shout-out Exalted supplements. Or, like, what, Anima? Oh, yeah, Anima. Except Anima does maintain a relatively good art budget. I will say that, yes. I mean, I feel like that's being mean to Anima to say that this art would be in there. Exactly. That You're being too cruel to the budget they put toward that and the good art that Wenem particularly puts into it because 80% of the art in Anima was done by one person. <laughs> uh, but, God, it is just that same, like, fart-sniffing, crazy-up-its-own-ass tone through the whole book where it just does not want to say anything plainly to you. Yes, this book, its whole ass is showing. <laughs> and I recently discovered that there's an actual episode of Dragon Ball Z where you see Yamcha's whole actual ass. <laughs> the entire thing. The entire thing. And it looks a lot like Tommy Wiseau's. <laughs> and I'm assuming this book's ass looks very similar. Like a sort of trapezoidal hot dog pressing against a casing that it seeks to burst from. And you might ask, why a hot dog? Wouldn't a hamburger more easily take a trapezoidal shape? That's the point. It's got weird, like, craters in it. It's, like, pockmarked. It has trenches so deep that you would swear water used to run through there. It's got trenches that X-Wings are flying through. (laughs) It is quite something. And hey... There's a hole at the center, no bigger than the size of a womp rat. <laughs> I used to uh, bullseye womp rats that no bigger than that back home. Yeah, yeah. But as you start getting into the rules material here in chapter one, it is keeping that same ridiculous tone, but also telling you simultaneously that these rules were crafted for ease of use and for like quick, easy play. But also... For realism? Yes. Like, the the book is like, hey man, uh, I decided to use these rules because it should be easy to remember all of them. And also, verisimilitude. Like, no dude, no. Y- you can't have both. You gotta pick one. Also, you have neither. Because, Correct. <laughs> because your rules are entirely based on sevens and thirteens. It is a percentile game where you have up to seven ranks in any given stat or skill, and each 
rank provides you with 13% success range on a D100 roll. Which is then modified by any potential skill ranks you might have, as well as the complexity of the task at hand. So you'll take your stat, you'll take your skill, you take it all, and then you have the facts of life. Correct. Uh, you take your stat and skill, you add it together, you subtract the difficulty, which is normally three. Whatever number you have left, you multiply by 13. Then that is your number to roll under. You, If you have more than seven, because 91% is the highest you can get, if you have more than that, then it's just a 90 2 to 99 is always a failure, 100 is always a critical success, and the range of how good you did will shift with a higher percentage. Yeah, so this is a game that, in addition to all of this ridiculous complex numerical figuring for just what is your margin of success, or what is your threshold of success, it does margins of success also based on 13s, but with each rank above seven that you have in your skill pool after it's been modified by difficulty you then get essentially free raises a la l5r for your threshold of success well you're for each yeah number like each multiple of 13 that you are under your target number yeah like if i roll and i am looking to get like 52 percent is my number and I managed to roll like a 38, then my margin of success was, I think, two because I'm more than 13 down. Right. And so... Oh, fucking God. There's... Because, of course, there are seven essential margins of success that determine exactly how well you succeeded, with the bottom tier being... You're a clumsy fuck, and boy, howdy, did you just scrape by all the way down to, like, three variations on that basic idea, and then just casually rolling it at the top. Yeah, it was like, all right, if you have, you just made your success, then you barely did what you set out, and then two and three are both like, you marginally succeeded, you technically did whatever you wanted to, but it didn't look pretty. Four five is you did what you set out to, and it basically looked about normal. And then six and seven are like, oh, you clown motherfuckers. Like, you straight show up and are just like, what up? It's me. I got a big cock. Right. And seven is such a weird number to base so many of your scales on. I'll say, at least there's a midpoint. You've got four as your midpoint there, so you can sort of use that as something to anchor any sort of gradients. That doesn't seem to have been well utilized by this system, however. No, it even says in the back of the book, they're like, oh, we did seven because it's a mythical number, but also you've got a good three on either side, and you can tell how things are falling because of that. And I go, yeah, if you used it that way, maybe, but you don't. You like the idea, but there's nothing behind it. That's the story of this book. Yeah, there's a lot of ideas without a lot going on. And like you said, we could spend several episodes talking about the amount of garbage that's in here. So 
the way that you build out a character, the basic things in the system, you've got your stats, but they're not called like attributes or skills or abilities. They are called primal aspects. Yeah, you have aspects. Your primal aspects are your your main stats. I was amazed that it starts out with strength and dexterity. Like you get your standard every role-playing game one, but then it decided to change all of the other names. So like instead of charisma, you have your lure. Yes. And instead of intelligence, you have mind. Right. Then you have for basically your catch-all magic stat, affinity, and then constitution, but also like sort of this weird bucket of every other thing that might theoretically be used to resist things is lumped under defiance. Yeah, your defiance is like your constitution and willpower got rolled into one. Right. To be strong of body, one must to be strong of mind. Also, they decided to split dexterity into two skills, so you have dexterity and reaction. Yeah, reaction being more your... Like, how quick you are on responding to things and dexterity being, like, your actual hand-eye coordination. Right. So there's, like, hand-eye coordination, fine motor skills versus sort of your fast muscle reflex sort of stuff. It's a distinction that almost always frustrates me because practically there's not a lot of use for the distinction. Not really. And especially because the those two stats, there is a... Speed, secondary aspect in this. Yep. That is action economy. Based on your speed rating, you will have however many actions per round. But the actions per round is based on your dex and reaction combined. So it's not even like they went, oh, okay, uh, reaction and something else. Or like, this is just reaction is how you get it so we can differentiate it. No, it's still just taking dex and reaction and giving you the stat. Right, so essentially, if you want to have anything to do with speed or, you know, accuracy, all of that whole typical king dexterity stuff, you just now have to invest in two attributes. Like, it's compulsory. You really can't pick and choose here. And the the main problem with reaction and dexterity uh, informing how many actions you get is it also ends up skewing the game towards ranged combat so much because your chance to hit someone with your fist or a melee weapon is based on just, like, your strength or dexterity to hit someone. But reaction and dexterity is what you're using for ranged. So if you're already pumping points into reaction because you need to for actions per round, you may as well just shoot a guy. Exactly. It very, very much makes those the absolute critical stats for physical combat. And then basically the only other stat that matters in most of the broader repercussions of the system is affinity. And then I guess your uh, defiance, where defiance informs your defenses, which, boy, this game is bad at health and defense. It's needlessly muddy. Where you've yeah, got everything is needlessly muddy in this. That's true. You've got a fun sort of ablative layer of armor where damage comes first, and then beyond that, 
you have a critical threshold, which is basically your actual health. And over time, you whittle down your ability to absorb damage, and then you start messing that critical threshold up. But they're split between all the body parts. Yeah, this game, of course, because they mentioned that the combat system was there to be realistic, means it has a hit location table. And the the way that it works is each different body part has its own defensive value, which changes based on your defiance as well as your race. And then what body part it is will have a modifier for what is going on. And then if I've got, say a six of my break point in a, in my arm or something. And someone hits me in my arm and does six or less damage. I take no damage. It just bounces off of my break point. Uh, anything above the six would then go to my actual hit points for that zone. However, every weapon also has a uh, stat on it, which is how much it takes away from your breakpoint level? Yeah. So that even if I get hit for six, take nothing, but the weapon I was hit with had a uh, like reduction value of two, my breakpoint for that specific arm goes down to four. That, frankly, is too much bookkeeping to be bothered with. It's so much bookkeeping. Because it's what? It's basically six... ten. Well, it's 12. six different zones. So it's 12... 12- HP pools that you're negotiating, basically. Oh, yeah. With breakpoints and your critical threshold. Six zones with six different... Well, three different, because it's basically... Your arms and legs are identical. Yeah. So arms, legs, then body and head. So you have three different levels of armor to track, which then you have to track each individually for each zone for what got lowered. Then you have hit points for all of them that you have to track for each of them. And it is just a goddamn nightmare to try and do. I don't know what you're talking about. I read through the book once and feel like I only need to refer to it for casual reference. Of course. Thank you, book. Thank you for letting me know that after reading through your goddamn rambling of an RPG, I'll only need to occasionally look at you. Yes, this was designed for ease of use and readability. (laughs) Bullshit it was. I mean, in addition to... The hit location thing, where you have a random hit location table when you go to hit someone. The one thing they did that is remotely useful is you can do a called shot to an area. And a called shot will give you between a minus one to a minus four on your your difficulty roll. And then if you would have hit, if it wasn't for that negative then you get to randomly roll for a hit location. So it doesn't penalize you for trying to hit a specific area. Though what that does is everyone starts the fight by called shot, head, everything forever. Yes. Also, what you're going to do when you're building your character is if you're going to be fighting ranged because you want those actions, you want as many actions as you can get so you can deal as much chip damage to the different uh, like thresholds as you can. So you want to maximize your dexterity, you want to maximize your reaction, and then you want to dump a bunch of skill points into your weapon skill for your ranged weapon so that you can take a million actions a turn 
and the penalty that you have to face for taking those called shots is ablated, but even if it's not, you still have a higher chance of hitting somewhere else. Oh, yeah. You're going to end up being at a point where you're like, all right, I'm probably going to hit you, like, period, but I've at least got a slightly better chance than normal of hitting you where I want to hit you. So it's really pretty clear the way you want to build a character if you want to be at all effective in combat, unless you want to spec yourself for magic, because there's three flavors of magic in this book. Two of them completely ignore the action economy. They give you one action per turn if you're going to be using them at all. And in that case, you want to dump all your points into your affinity stat. Oh, yeah, because the affinity stat is just your, all right, this is what you use for casting magics, and the better it is, the better your magics. So you can pretty much just be like, uh, most of the time I'm probably only going to be doing one thing. I might have a once-per-action ability with my magic stuff, so maybe I'll care about my speed, but you can, like, ignore everything else. Unless you decide that you want to be an Avatar the Last Airbender, in which case you're going to dump all of your points into firebending because that's the <laughs> one that looks the coolest. Uh, actually, basically, avatars are like adepts from Shadowrun. So they enhance your baseline abilities so you can do even more stuff to fuck with how fast and accurate you are. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple that are less ridiculous. Like, there's one that's just sort of like a healing one, uh, where you can regenerate yourself or heal other people. You know, there's a couple that are like, this is just defensive quality. So, you know, you end up becoming pretty much just immune to, like, diseases and poisons and all sorts of nonsense like that. But you know you want to buy that celerity. Oh, yeah. But there is one that is just speed, and it's, like, time manipulation. And it ends up being like, hey, you can... Spend some of your glow, which is your... Glorious Ladies of Wrestling. Yeah, you can spend some Glorious Ladies of Wrestling. Allison Bree comes out and beats the <laughs> shit out of your opponent. Congratulations, you've won. Also, Mark Marin's there. And I don't, I don't know why. He creeps me out. He should. He looks like the worst kind of dad. <laughs> uh, I think he is the worst kind of dad. The kind of dad that's Mark Marin. <laughs> Yeah, bullseye. <laughs> All right, so, so now that your enemy's dead from the glow. So glow is pretty much your MP in this. So if you've got any magical ability at all, uh, it's going to be based off your affinity, and you'll have a certain number of points, and you can spend, you know, however much your ability costs to do a thing. But with the time manipulation one as an avatar, you can be like, I'll just give myself extra actions or... Make you have less actions? Yeah, I'll, I'll fuck up your number of actions such that if you had only one, you don't get to do anything this round. Or I can make it so that, you know, whatever action you do is minus four for the difficulty. It's it's a lot. Like, that that one tree is just like, fuck, okay. Right. I feel like it doesn't take a high degree of, like, complicated systems knowledge of being able to just basically parse a game system. To basically figure out, oh, this is actually very, very powerful. Uh, oh, yeah. Probably to the point that it's objectively broken. 
Probably. Uh, for most of the Avatar stuff and the other caster type that does it is Rays. That yeah. only have... I'm sorry, John. Razors. Like, those, those are the people who cast it. Yes. So Rays is the type of magic. Razors are the, the casters. Ugh. That's right. Just like the scooter. <laughs> but they have pretty much like seven levels that you could get to. Because of course. Because that's this game. Uh, and for the Avatar stuff, the level seven capstone ability for whatever your thing is, is always, okay, you're just crazy go nuts on this. There's one that's the anti the dark path. And it's capstone is, oh, if you uh, hit someone with this, they explode and die. No save. If you just touch them, they blow up. And also everything that's a servant of the dark within like a hundred yards from you is also banished or dead. You're like, neat. Okay. Thanks. That's worth buying. Uh, The only other way really in the casting system to fuck up the action economy as much as you would like is I think both ethromancy, which is one of the things you can do or... Uh, in the Avatar stuff is making golems because the Mm. golem will act autonomously. So instead of giving yourself more actions, you're like, oh, I just create a dude that also fights for me and has a bunch of good stats and I just have him beat people up for me. Yeah, I genuinely can't remember if that is a raise power or an Avatar power, but I do know that it's one of those things that scales on all levels based on the number of points that you put into it. So again, if you decide that your viable combat option is going to be, I make golems, you want to rush to seven as quick as possible because that means it's more durable. That means it's around longer. uh, And it can fuck more things up. Like it is just basically a flat boost across all aspects. Yeah, it's got a number of points based on how many points you have. So the more XP you've got and the more points you put into things, the better your golem is. But it's also, mostly they say, oh, it comes out and it doesn't really have skills. So you spend all of your points just on stats because it's not like I need to worry about giving my golem, like, archaeology as a skill. Right. So it's just, what did you do? I made a giant golem. It's got a seven in fucking strength and it just punches your face. Exactly. Uh, so that's the other way you can kind of break that action economy is to be like, oh, I'll, I'll heavily invest in also shooting, but then I'll just make a dude that like tanks for me. And I do feel the need to point out that the illustration that they provide in the book here for that particular power is of course a creepy little anime girl in front of a golem that is assembling itself from shattered concrete. Yeah. Uh... One of the weird things with that is I think that's in the raise powers because one of the big things of raise as a power source is avatar just sort of comes from this is like gifts from God. You are an avatar of whatever fucking God. Uh, the raise powers are like fire starter type based on emotion. Uh, How loud you scream, Deborah? Yeah, a lot of just Stephen King books. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And it is just your emotional state. So the higher in the level you are, the more control you have over the, like, what happens when you do it. So, like, if I have the raised powers that's just like, 
I destroy stuff. I shoot like a bolt of destructive energy. It at lower levels, it just looks like a giant bolt of nonsense comes out of nowhere and it's very flashy and weird. But the higher the level is, the more I can make it subtle. Right. And I like the idea that these raise powers will literally raise things. Like they will tear stuff apart as you use them because of the power of your emotions and the chaotic manifestations of that. Just like Carrie from the Stephen King novel. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure how I feel about the way that they basically give you not only a flat power boost with almost all of these, but then a fine tuner on the direction of it where it yeah. feels like you are slowly building yourself up into consequence-free casting unless you want to, you know, take your mana burn because that's a yeah, an effect in this. Ether burn. Ether burn. It's like something pops out of the ether and pours battery acid on you. Yep. The, I mean, the golem thing for this is one of those examples of they wanted to make raise powers be very obvious and destructive. And if you were to use this in like a city, you would draw a lot of attention because all of a sudden you've ripped out the side of a building and turned it into a monster. Right. And they say the same thing with like your first level ability where it lets you basically remote do remote activation of technology. Oh yeah. Where and you they're like, be like, Oh, I turn on a computer from across the room, but you turn on all of the technology all across the block. Like it's all the computer startup or all of the cars. Yeah. But the thing in the golem one is they also give you the option of essentially turning a, uh, like an effigy into the monster. So like if I had a teddy bear, I could just make the teddy bear grow into a big monster and attack someone. And when the duration was over, it would turn back into the teddy bear, which makes me go, okay, so everyone who has this power is obviously just carrying around some sort of doll because then you don't have to worry about like, oh, I, I blew up a city block in order to make my big golem. Mm, not me, John. Me? I walk up, got a big old cello case on my back. You know I mean business. Lay that bad boy down. Flick it open. One, two, three, four locks. Pop it open. What's in there? Oh, it's just my waifu pillow. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And then uh, you got a you got a big fluffy titty lady that's uh -huh. gonna wreck shit for you. Yep. Good. I'm glad. I'm real excited about this character, guys. When we get to the bonus content and we make characters. You should be real excited. Oh, yeah. Look forward to that deep anime poll that I'm going to give for <laughs> who my my waifu is. Uh, the God, we also haven't mentioned the races in this book yet. Oh, boy. Yeah, we should get away from some of that mechanical minutia to start talking about the actual clusterfuck that is this, so much of this lore. The setting has... Humans that they don't want to call humans. Right, they're humans, but special. Like, there's implied that you're favored by the old gods, so you're better than the regular people. Yeah, it's... I can't even remember their name, because it's just... It's like the the Liriah Kia or something. Yeah. And you're a human that uh, doesn't have the wool pulled over their eyes, because you know about what the, the real the happenings are and you know about the old world and you know all about that doinkness <laughs> you get that hot doink gnats and it's you know that's sort of fine i guess They're it's like, like 
classic World of Darkness hunters, almost. Yeah, you're like, okay, you're a human, but you know that there's weird shit out in the world and that things aren't always what they seem. Okay, that's that's fine. Fine, but the contextualization doesn't really make any sense. I also don't know why we needed to change the name for it because, you know, when it happens in a book that is like a fantasy setting, they're like, oh... Humans are known as whatever in my dumb fantasy setting. I'm like... Yeah, they're known as the uh, small gobbos. Yeah, that's fine. The There's small... no goblins, just small gobbos, yeah, and small the gobbos, gobbos are, are humans. humans. That's fine. Like, I hate it. I do. But I, I can at least say, sure, fine, whatever. In your dumb world, this is the name of humans. But in this, it's like, oh, no, this takes place in the modern world. You know, where we live. And so, no, you're not a human. You're a Hyundai Elantra. <laughs> And if someone called me, they're like, oh, welcome to the the old world, and you know what's going on, my my Lyra Casona. I'm going into battle. And, and I need, need your strongest, strongest potions. <laughs> yeah, if that happened, I'd be like, I'm sorry, you appear to have mistaken me for some weird dumb bullshit. I am a human. Yep. Nope. Just, I'm a what? <laughs> You're a wizard. A what? <laughs> a fucking wizard! So, yeah, they're humans, but special. They're because the cool humans. you see things that other people don't. Just like me, Christopher Ash. <laughs> we get elves named the Solana. Oh, so close to Sylvan, uh-huh. but just a little bit off. Just a little bit. Because these elves are edgier. These elves are thick. They've got dense musculature. Yeah, that was a super weird thing they spent a lot of time talking about where they're like, yeah, they look thin, but they've got fucking powerful legs like tree trunks, but they're thin tree trunks, but they're also like a mighty sequoia. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, okay, I guess you wanted to have your elves be thin, but also you were like, oh, that whole waif thing. No, I ain't having that. Elves in my world, they're thick boys. They've it's, got that that hard meat on them. It's really, really weird, and the best reasoning I can come to is basically just anime. They want those weird, waifish, thin elves who can also carry around those enormous buster swords, but realistically. Oh, yeah. But it's like, oh, I hit one with a bat, and it didn't do anything because his, his muscle strength is so high. He's got so much core power. <laughs> Oh, man, I punched him in the stomach and his abs broke my fingers. I was hoping I could get him, just like I got Houdini. That's right, I did it. It was me. (laughs) When I killed Houdini, I sound just like this. Sorry. (laughs) So, yeah, there's just elves. I think they have black slara, maybe, in their eyes. Like, they're big, weird, creepy, dark eyes, so it's harder for them to blend in unless they're wearing sunglasses and have, like, long hair. Yeah, and they've got the anime elf ears, so not the, like, just pointy Spock-type ears, but the actual, like, go-out-six-inches-type ears. Right, it's like you put a a big old piece of string cheese on the end of a human ear and then just sort of use that as a scaffold yeah, for the rest of that elf ear. floppy cheese ear. Oh, yeah. And that's where your normal races that you would find in a game like this end. Oh, boy. So, yeah. And then we get into... There are two left. I'm going to start 
with the rat people. Yeah. So I want to say there's a sort of sliding scale here in the book where there's a slow creep of apparent fetishization that is going on where you have your normal humans, whatever, that's a power fantasy. Then you've got your elves who are all sort of like very powerful, but like compact and tough. And you can see and they're the, that. the like the mages they made ethromancy. So they're like, again, we're trying to play against type. Our elves and our wizards are both beefy. Right. So there's a little bit you can see in there, but this is where it starts getting fucked up. <laughs> there are mice people, and I forget the name of them. It's like this the scared. The Hildegarns. Something with an S. And they are, when you first meet them, like the coolest little friendly mouse people. They just look like tall mice that can stand on two feet. Uh, They're nice and friendly. They are called the Oraki. Oraki, that's it. So no S, I'm just high. Uh, It's okay, I can't blame you. There's so many nouns. There's so many fucking nouns in this. So the Oraki have, uh, like, a tail that they can use to, like, grab stuff. They have, like, prehensile feet, so they can sort of manipulate stuff with that. They love cool shinies. They're, like, inventive. They've they, got... they are super good at traveling among people. They've got a natural talent for languages. They're, like, knowledge keepers. Very interesting sounding. Yeah, and and the pictures of them are very much like, these are adorable mouse people. Yeah, super, super cute. But the text. The text goes into, after describing them as being like, oh yeah, okay, these are friendly mice people and they're welcome pretty much anywhere in the old world because they're good at like trading and also they're, they know all the customs and they do all this and that. And you're like, okay, cool. But like, if they're in the new world, they definitely live in the sewers. Oh yeah. But everyone would freak out if they saw a rat person in, you know, normal America. With so, so many rings. So, nah. None of that. And then the description of them, they're like, oh, yeah. So they're they're small and they're furry and they look like mice. The ladies, though, are definitely feminine. They're decidedly feminine. Which, you know, you look at the art and you're like, no, they're they're not. They, they There's a picture of a side-by-side, like, boy and girl mouse person, and they look basically, basically the, the same. same. Yeah, there's slightly rounder features on the lady mouse. Like, there was that feminization. And also, talking about disparities, they talk a lot about how much the boy Iraqi love to grow little weird, like, master splinter beards. Oh, yeah. They're like, the all of them are covered in fur, but the dudes can grow a little bit extra on that chin. But not the ladies, because they spent all that development Growing thick, ropey tits. <laughs> but don't you worry. Fucking the the mice people, they don't like to fuck. All of their relationships are based on mutual respect and understanding. Cool, but it's because they hate fucking. No, they get nothing out of it. They have no passion. for. Like, they have no sexual drive. Fucking for them is like washing their hands. They're like, I should do this. No, I don't really care. And that is not inherently a bad thing. I think that asexuality is definitely something that's largely underrepresented in games. But don't couple it with your weird, nasty... All right, so we got we got the man. Looks just like Reaper Cheap. 
However, <laughs> the lady, she's Stacked. like a big titty rat fursona. <laughs> Which, if that had been in the art, I would have been like, fuck. Got and thighs like Chun-Li. <laughs> the fact that it isn't makes me go like, all right, maybe, maybe I read too much into this. But it really, in the text, it seems sounds... like he's saying, like, oh, you're going to see one of these rat ladies, and you're going to get a little chub. Look, but don't you worry about it. It's going to make you sexually confused, <laughs> just like the one from Chippendale. I hope this doesn't awaken anything in me sexually. Yeah, it's very bad. However... It's not the worst. And that is buck wild. I thought this is as bad as it can get. Surely the next thing's going to be fine. There's a lot of cool things about these little rat boys. If you just ignore the creepy sex stuff. Okay, so the last race. And I've, the book does say you can make up whatever race you want, but there are only four core ones. Oh, yes, because this is a generic system designed to be used for anything of any genre. <laughs> and easy to read and use and understand. Oh, yeah, you'll barely need to reference this book. The last race... The Asanalia are forever children. They are the, like, baby Hermans of the world, except they age to the point where they get to be, like, teenagers. And but, like, 13 or 14-year-olds. Yeah, their adult level of, like, progression is, they look to be probably between about 13 to 15. Like, when they get too elderly, they look maybe 18. Yeah. So, you have these children, weird soldier people, because they also are across the board, like, dedicated to fighting and balance. Right. They're like, again, there's nothing inherently bad. There's some stuff that's very interesting about, like, a sort of feral child archetype, but... Not here. They spend... <laughs> well, I mean, when it first starts, they start talking about, like, oh, they there's a idea that this is... They're a, the newest race to exist, and the Dark is sort of afraid of them because they think this is a reaction to how awful people are to children, and this race exists to be, like, vengeance for wrongdoings done to children. Right. And... That's almost a thing where I'm like, okay, you've got, like, weird, feral child Avengers. Right. Again, it belies some of the strange perspectives that seem to poke out at so many points in this book, but I can take that concept. Yeah. The, the book goes on, and after describing how their uh, aging process is basically like, you know, they start out, they look like kids. They continue to look like kids. They get to adulthood and they look like young teens. But if you were to take their clothes off... It is indignant about this. They repeat this several times. Look. Christopher, back off. Look, if you if you just take that kid's clothes off, you'll see, oh, they've got an adult's musculature. Oh, don't you worry. Underneath all those rags and clothes from that feral-looking kid... Oh, they got a dick. Don't you worry. They Just hang dong. Like a grown-up, yeah. Got a cock like a horse, that boy. <laughs> oh, my fuck. It is 
real uncomfortable to read the passages where it's like, check out these forever children, and they're so stacked underneath their clothes. I I took a brief pause after I read the Iraqi section because gross. <laughs> At this point, I think that I very nearly threw the book across the room. I think you messaged me and were on the verge of being like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. It was harrowing. I'm like, I'm five chapters in. It could get so much worse. Like, this is a mistake. <laughs> Anime was a mistake. Yes, it was. These proto-moe fuckers. It was... It's it's real bad when you get to that point in the book and you're like, man, I don't know if I can keep going with this because the more he explains what's going on in this world... The worse it gets. Yeah, the more I'm just like, no... No, your opinions on things are no. No, it's very bad. I very rarely have read a book that was so objectionable that I almost just walked away. There's a couple, especially in RPG space. There's a couple that are like Manual of Exalted Power Infernals in 2nd Edition Exalted. Oh, yeah. Is fucking disgusting. It is worse than that. Oh, it's far worse than that. It is explicitly worse than that. But then most of the other stuff is couched as being sort of black dog entertainment or like that vein of like hyper edgy weird for, a, for mature, a, mature adults. But in here they just casually throw it out. And Chris, did you think that was okay? Yeah, sexualizing the forever children is uh I'm gonna go ahead and say I'm gonna go out on a limb here. I'm gonna take a weird stand. I'm going to say it's bad. Yeah, red flag. <laughs> do not do that. Oh, fuck. The... Like, the the Lady Iraqis and not liking sex, objectionable and questionable, but it's not going to make me walk away. This made me question my life. <laughs> what am I doing with my life? Uh, yeah. And, you know, we could harp on this for a while, and that's fine. I also just want to say, mechanically, each race gets... There's a merit and flaws that is the gifts and frailties in yes, this. or your extended aspects. The Every race starts with some gifts. Uh, so, you know, if you're an Iraqi, you're a little mouse person, you get a tail as a gift, you get prehensile feet as a gift, and then you get, like, good with languages... And there you go. You get that. Right. You get some, like, toughness-related attributes yeah, the for the elves. The Slaughter, like, I've got a buff physique, and uh, I have, an, like, an affinity for magic or some shit. Uh, you get the four-point powerful daddy attribute. <laughs> Humans get to just pick either two three-point bonuses or one four-point. And then the Asanalia, these children get... Two four points and a three point that are basically the best ones you would get. Because 70% of your merits and flaws here are garbage picks. They just suck. Oh, yeah. I mean, they do get one of the ones that sucks. The Asanalia get no scent. Oh, you can't get tracked by scent. You don't have a smell. Okay, sure. That's not really a thing that matters too much, but great. However, they have a two four points. One of them is... You just straight up increase your speed rating by one. So, you know, what you're supposed to do 
is take this forever child, boost their stats. Do you want that dexterity? You want that reaction? And then you want to give them the biggest gun you can find. Oh, yeah. You get them some ridiculous rifle, and you just go to town on motherfuckers. That is the optimal way to tear someone apart in this game. The weird thing is, they the other 4.1 they get that is just very good is they get a small bonus, and it's it's just easier for you to evade. All right. of your defensive stuff is easier, and there's no penalty. Right, so not only do you hit better, and more often, you are harder to hit. And the weird thing about that is they didn't give it to the rat people, even though they are also like three Tiny, foot tall. Yeah, <laughs> it was a weird choice. It was a very strange choice, but they just gave... The two objectively best things you could get to the little forever well, children. You can tell that those were a favorite. Oh yeah. In the writing, there's they come up a lot. One of the gods, I think the goddess of balance is. Oh yeah, she's like one oh, of I them. love them. Right, and she manifests as one of them, and then they get all the good stuff. I also want to take a moment here to point out that at the start of the racist chapter, they describe the life cycle of all of the creatures. And they give a fun, unique name to each stage of the life cycle, which we already have. And like, they put in parentheses afterward. Right, they were so, like, oh, uh, the the Riza stage where you are a, an adolescent. I'm like, you could say adolescent. You just did. Right. You don't need a name for it. And then in the Grupkis stage, young adulthood, <laughs> like, what? No. Just... Just use those words. Yeah, yeah. But that's part of this book's thing where they're like, oh, I can't just have a word be a word. I need dumb shit for it. The whole uh, Ray's magic system, all of it is like, instead of it, this thing being called healing, it's called yai. And yai, yeah. yai is the word that means to heal people in the old tongue. I'm like, Fuck you! Yeah, it's going out of its way to make it harder to understand. Yes. And especially in the case of the life stages, there's just no value add. No. No value add whatsoever. Especially since they mention at the beginning, they occasionally throw it out here or there, but it's not like a central idea to anything, so it's not... Getting you anything to change this name. Reading this cover to cover, it was definitely a payoff of the Asana Leia in the Ryza stage that was mentioned in chapter one, but you didn't need to do that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, fuck. We, Jesus Christ, we're just going to have a long episode. So this book was fucked up, guys. Top to bottom. So we we sort of went into... The, Two of the magic systems as well. I want to briefly touch on the third one. The avatar is just you gain power in some type of thing and it grows for that. The yeah. uh, raise... You also don't deal with your ether burn. No. Uh, all you do is if you run out of your glow to spend, you just, you're done. And you slowly advance toward corruption, basically. There's a corruption stat. Uh, the uh, raise doesn't deal with that. It's called fade. Uh, oh, yes, fade. Yeah, Good. your glow goes to fade. 
Yeah, you get faded. What? But in order to <laughs> recover from that, you need to get lit. <laughs> Good. Uh, so the raise system is you don't have a chance of getting faded, but you do experience ether burn. Yes, it's a lot more explosive. The ethromancy is the last one, and it is the most like the World of Darkness mage system where you're like, I have a purview with power points in it and I just sort of make up shit that I'm going to do with it. Right, it's a freeform spellcasting system with basically spheres of influence so you have a sort of constellation of powers, except very bad. It is so awful, especially given that One of these spheres is called Alpha. You need to have at least level one in it because it is your ability to cast sphere, essentially. It's your how powerful are you. Also, otherwise you're a cuck. (laughs) Yeah, if you don't have dots in Alpha, then you are a beta and you are a cuck and everyone will know it. And also a soy boy. (laughs) So the, (laughs) you need points in that, probably at least three before you can even put points into things that actually do stuff. Because Alpha doesn't do anything on its own, period. No, it is basically just a flat barrier to entry. It is, you must be this tall to ride the magic stat. The other thing you have is all of these other zones where it's like, oh, elements, so you can do anything that's elemental-based, or vision, so you can do anything based on senses or viewing something. But... You also have two more spheres that are basically just there to fuck with the other things. Yes, they are just modifiers to your other things. You've got number one, good man, Hugo Weaving. (laughs) You got behinding. Uh, Binding lets you weave other things together. So if you wanted to have a spell where it's like, all right, I need to uh, create a fireball but i also want that fireball to to, move (laughs) to to like when it hits uh explode into little firemen you're like okay well i need creation as well as elements so my my fire golem is two different things and i'm gonna have to have binding in order to weave elements and creation together right but also if you want to get that fireball to go anywhere you also need Arena. Arena which... is your AoE. So normally to cast a spell, it is a line of effect. So you'd be like, I could cast along a straight line or on a target. If I wanted my fireball to explode, explode. then I would need Arena. Arena, in addition to that, is also teleportation, which is very strange to me. Yep. It's like, oh, Arena, the better your Arena, the larger your AoE can be and the more powerful it'll be. Also, the more levels you have in it, you can teleport things. You're like, what the fuck does that have to do with AoE? It's just a big old pile of extra effects that you're probably going to need because some of the descriptions of spellcasting they use are like, well, if you want to look in that alley over there and warp yourself, you're going to need both arena and vision to make sure that nobody sees you. Oh, yeah, you're going to need to see where you're going. So you have to use your vision 
on that alley, but it's not a straight line. You can't see it. So you've got to arena it. And then once you arena it, you can arena teleport yourself over there. Right. And with your binding and the weaving, the number of ranks you have is a cap on the number of different disciplines you can weave into a single spell. So you probably want three or four dots of that and three or four dots of arena. So you've already got like between, let's call it 10 and 12 points distributed between just your alpha, your weaving, and then your uh, your arena. AOE. Yeah. So that's a pretty high barrier to entry and before you can do anything. Oh, yeah. That's just a baseline before you start getting into things that's like, and now I actually affect stuff. And the problem with that is, as well, once you go like, oh, I've got all of these ranks and dumb shit, you have to put several ranks into anything before it's worth it. Goddamn. There's one of the uh, spheres you could go into is, I think it's Essence, which is pretty much just telekinesis. It's moving things around. But level one of it is maybe you can lift a pencil it doesn't really do anything. Right. They are like low-level parlor tricks across the board at the low end. Oh, yeah. They're like, oh, uh, in elements at level one, perhaps you might be able to light someone's cigarette or, like, blow some dust around, and that is it. So level one and two for pretty much everything in Ethromancy is you don't actually do anything. This is a speed bump. It's just real bad, and it feels like, based on the structure of this spellcasting system, like a lot of it was looking to something like Mage, but that's got a five-dot scaling, and we love the number seven here, so we've just got to pad it out somehow. And the problem was, they just padded it by making two-level speed bumps and then going on to a regular one to five. Here's some lame cantrips. Yeah, okay, you bought into whatever power that can mold the very fabric of the universe... I don't know. Maybe you could turn on a light switch. Eh. It's, it's frustrating. It's very sad. at how much you have to invent because that sort of freeform creativity stuff is very fun. Like, oh, it's yeah. A very I love the idea of make your own spells. If you're, like, in for that, it can be a very fun way to express creativity. However, the game makes that really, really hard, especially when you can take all of those resources you poured into even trying to, like, step onto the playing field to just summon a big fuck-off golem. Oh, yeah. Or make yourself the Flash. Yeah, if you go to rank 7 in pretty much any of the other things, you will be, at start of game, amazing. I mean, the rank 7 of the defensive avatar tree means you are permanently immune to... Basically anything that isn't someone just coming up to you and punching you. And even then, you have a higher defense against it. Right. All right, at level 7, I'm immune to all diseases, all poisons, uh, all, like, natural occurring things. I'm immune to magic, so if you are an ethromancy and you try to throw a fireball at me, I don't give a shit. Right. You're going to have to come and throw hands. But I've decided to also have a huge gun, and I shoot you a bunch, so fuck off. Correct. And because I didn't need to uh, put as many points into this as you did into your ethromancy, I'm way better at shooting you. Correct. It's it's one of those things where you look at ethromancy and go, yeah, if you were to play this game to, like, an epic level scale, 
to the point where you're like, oh, I've got like level seven in five different spheres. Right. Or even just do like an Ethromancer's only game where you sort of set, this is the sort of baseline power we want people to go into this game with, like you would in something like Mage, then you can sort of have fun playing in that sandbox. But looking at the other options, it feels very punishing, even though the baseline components are cheaper. You still have to buy into so many of them. Oh, yeah. And I mean, there's pretty much a healing tree in all three of the different types that you can do. And I think it's the raise one is just flat out better than any of the other ones. So if it's what you want to do is like, oh, I want to be a support healer. I want to do stuff like that. You just do it through raise because it's much cheaper and more efficient to do it that way. Right. And you can see that in several different things where you're like, oh, if one of, what you wanted to do was action economy nonsense, you're an avatar. Yep. If what you wanted to do was either make a golem or heal, you're a raise. If what you wanted to do was spend way too long not being powerful, you're an Athromancer. Right. Again, wasted potential could have been very fun, but just... Stuck in that one to seven range. Yeah, exactly. Uh, There are a couple of ideas that are present in this game that are kind of exciting or interesting or fun, and then it's all just either a failure to deliver or the aggressive evasion of answering any substantive questions (laughs) for 300 pages. Yes. The after you find out how to make your character and you go through all of this shit, it finally the very end is like, hey, man, let me tell you what's going on. And I was ecstatic. Because oh, the, I was. The book gives you nothing. Up giddy. Until this. I was going on there to, I think, chapter 10, where it's like the story chapter. I'm like, finally, because up some until this good point, fucking food. Oh, yeah. Up till this point, I had no idea what I was supposed to be doing in this world. I could not come up with something that resembled a decent character concept because I didn't know where to, like, the types of characters that maybe you should be playing. Well, the the book is so confused tonally as well that it constantly goes back and forth between these, like, the modern grim knight of the the world and the people who live in the cities. And you're like, Okay, how am I a rat man that's going to exist in the modern world? Oh, rat you're not. man. It specifically says anyone that isn't human is going to be fucked up if you try and do that. Yes, basically they say that. But like 90% of the examples of what's going on in the book are you're in a city or a town somewhere. Right, so basically you either live in the, the sewers, a la Master Splinter. Yeah. Or you live in the countryside like a Bigfoot. Yeah, and... Then it gives you the option to be like, oh, or you can play in the overworld in Yaira and Zyra and and those those worlds are basically fantasy lands, but also connect to every dimension. So you could go to a sci-fi world if you wanted to. Right. It's like a world of endless potential and possibility that exists just thinly beyond the veil of reality, which is thin in some places. Because in addition to paying a lot of homage to things like Mage and Changeling, there's some werewolf here too. And hey, maybe, maybe the people who wrote this book, maybe Chris, never touched the world of darkness. I find that 
very difficult to believe. I, I find that highly unlikely, and I would assume that he has. I, I would assume that he has, too, based on literally everything about this book. <laughs> the, but the story chapter is basically just more of the, like, hey, so what are the hours? Well, the hours are points when existence can be changed by one event, perhaps small, perhaps large. But also is a cycle. You're like, okay. For once, after 12 comes yeah, one again. Once, once you reach the 12 on the clock, then reality is destroyed and remade. And you're like, hold on one second. So if the, so is, what's the timeline on these hours? Because, like, it gives an example. The only example of an hour is in World War II, some platoon stops a train that's going through to, like, Nazi Germany, and it turns out it's just full of water. And they're like, oh, that's a shame. They've got plenty of water. Uh, They aren't short on resources like that. This was a failure, but, oh, it turned out that water was going to be used for their nuclear test site and they might have gotten the bomb first and that shifted the balance in that hour i go okay that's that's fine all right but are hours a thing that we're gonna deal with well right there's a sense that they have some metaphysical weight and it feels like anytime you an- you ask a question or the book presents you with a section you're like oh cool i'm gonna get some answers you don't you get timothy leary going on to you about the Wonderful qualities of meditation and LSD. <laughs> well, I mean, my main issue with it was the the whole hours thing and the 13th hour and everything else is so harped on in this. And then when it finally gives you an example, you go like, okay, but that would be a garbage adventure for a party to go on to be like, oh, oh the- boy, water. Yeah, the party from their point of view would have been like, oh, we stopped a train. And there was nothing on it that mattered. And then we just went about our business. Like, that's a shitty story. Right. It feels really bad to learn in, like, the epilogue to your adventure. Oh, yeah, but that train water was going to make nuclear warheads. And, And, I mean, it's one thing for after the adventure to go, guys, let me break it down to you. You may have felt like you did nothing and actually did nothing during this game session. But you were big heroes. You just didn't know it, and your characters don't know it, and it's fine. Uh, okay. Refer, please, back to the what is role-playing section of this book <laughs> and ask yourself, how do those two things square? <laughs> yeah. I am I... free from my mental shackles, doused only in Nazi water. Finally, I'm a big damn hero and as, as I swim in a big Nazi pool in a train. Great. Right, and they're all like that. Anytime you look at the book saying, oh, so here's what cities are like, and cities are only uptowns and downtowns. Oh, yeah, and uptown is 1980s, and everyone's business, and they're all doing coke, and the the police are there to make sure the riffraff stay out, and they don't understand the plight of the common man. Right. They just want money. Right, and it's weird because they say the police are there are on the take. Like, the police here suck, but you go downtown. What you've got... Actually, I guess there are three parts of cities because then there's the underworld. But downtown, it it's is the portrayed... It's the 1990s gangs. It's definitely like 1990s 
Los Angeles riots. There's only two people on the streets. Gangbangers and the policemen who are well, tough, but they're they're there to create law and order by any right. means. They have this sense of grim resignation, and they know the true like weight of struggle, and it portrays both of those people as being on some level enlightened, but also this book spends so much time glorifying the fucking police, <laughs> especially in poor areas where it's like, have you thought about this at all? Have you actually looked into any of this? Because, buddy, it doesn't look good. Well, I mean, it is. It's especially bad now. But even when it was written, you're like, guy, no. But, buddy. Buddy, please. Yeah. 12 years later, it definitely has not aged well. But this was a pre-recession book. Police brutality, however, especially keying off of, like, that 1990s gangland thing. Oh, yeah. Like, no, police brutality's been around well, for when they call... since the police were formed. Oh, yeah, since they call out specifically that downtown is this 1990s gangs of the street roving, like, riot nonsense. I'm like, you you remember the reason that that started, remember? Right. Like you, you remember about that whole police brutality thing? Exactly. It's very, very weird. But then there's the underworld, which I'm not sure if it's a literal or a metaphorical thing, because it's sort of both. Like, because they're it's they're where, both like, oh, it's the the gritty crimesmen, like the ones who are like not just gangbangers, but like crackheads and homeless people and all the people that. Society is forgotten about, but also literally underground. They know. They remember. Pepperidge Farm remembers. <laughs> Pepperidge Farm is in the sewers, and they want you to come float. Yeah. <laughs> Pepperidge Farm wants to give you a come float. <laughs> God damn it. Pepperidge Farm, get out of here. <laughs> You've got so many weird hang-ups. <laughs> you would be a cool guy to hang around with if you didn't just bring it up <laughs> all the time. Ah. Pull back. Want, maybe you want one of these uh, floats I made. No. No. There's a special ingredient in it. It's cummies. Ugh. <laughs> My cummy bears. That's what I call the gang of Iraqis who I have, though. <laughs> Beat well, down intruders. Uh, so, yeah. And each of these sections, by the way, in the story section, has a list of media references. And they specifically list for the underworld Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman. Yeah. So that does give me the impression that he has it is, indeed read that. Right. And that there is also like a literal sort of structure here, but it's so vague and cagey that it's not clear if it's actually just like the worst parts, like the absolute gutters. Yeah. There's a lot of I'm not sure what you were going for in this. Like I said, any time a question is raised, the answer to it is just sort of cagey dancing around anything of substance. I also really love the when it gets into the small town stuff. <laughs> this is one of my favorite ridiculous things about this book. The media suggestions for, hey, what's it like out in the like small towns not suburbs but like 
little rural towns. Right. See the entire collected works of Stephen King. Right. It basically just says, have you thought about Stephen King? If you're not into reading, how about Watching movies by Stephen King. Right. Have you considered watching Stand By Me based on the story The Body by Stephen King? Yeah, because in the, like, literature you should read, oh, Salem's Lot and The Body and It and uh, all of these various Stephen King things and goes, and for movies... Maybe you should watch Stand By Me or It. <laughs> You're like, come on, man. Just you, anything else. You missed the two good ones, boy. You could have put Under the Dome and Maximum Overdrive in there. But here we are. Here we are. No dome, no cars, only sadness. <laughs> and this moves from this very weird, distorted view of cities into an equally distorted view of small-town America where I know two things. Each town harbors a deep, dark secret that everyone is complicit in the harboring of, and two, everybody wants to get on the football captain's jock. (laughs) Uh, It's so true. And they're like, oh, yeah, you also can't set a game here if you're anything but human because... Everyone in a small town will immediately alert everyone else to what's going on. If they see a small forever child, they'll be like, did you see that kid? The whole town knows now. You're weird. It's very, very weird. This, Please take your hot tone adult body out of my town. Get out of here with those sculpted pecs. How dare you? I can see your thick dong through those pants, and you need to get out of town. It's a mess. Because the perspective that this book ultimately feels like it's giving when you try to square the city with this small town stuff is, everybody sucks? Yeah. And then the weird thing where it's like, oh, what if you go into the wilderness? Oh, then you tell stories like Lord of the Rings. That threw me for a fucking loop. Because I was expecting... Like, road trip narratives. I was expecting, like, Americana stuff. Like, there's a lot of stuff here that hints towards, like... You know, give me an American Gods or even, like, a weird, like, into the wild shit. Right. You know, without a paddle. (laughs) That classic... Yeah, that classic piece of Americana without a paddle. Dax Shepard is my god. We've all seen it. We all know. We all know. We all know that those ladies are natural. Supernatural. Ugh. Yes. Need, God damn it, I have watched that movie. <laughs> need we say more? Ugh. Okay, we so, are we are getting to like the hour and a half mark. Okay, we've been... Look, this book's a mess. It's, it's a, bad. It's a hot garbagey mess. And I'm going to give the onerous task of trying to come up with the best and worst in here. And uh, Quinn... What's the best thing in 713? Okay, so there's actually some stuff in this book that is very, very good base-level theory and advice for how to be a decent person at a game table and how to GM with, like, relative stability and how to not just be an asshole. Yeah, there's the, a the lot running of... the, the game section in the back is, is fun. Right, and in the character section, they specifically call out, like, Talk to your party about the type of character you want to make. Make sure that you have a team player. Nobody likes, like, a skittish lone wolf. Make sure that you're making decisions that are 
dramatically interesting and play into the overall narrative. GMs, validate your player decisions. Don't, like, force them into something they don't want to do. All of that stuff is really, really good, and it feels like there was a solid theoretical baseline, but the second you start trying to take off from there, it just explodes. (laughs) So that core there gave me some hope and... It was actually advice that is not uncommon to see in role-playing texts to this day. Yeah. So that was encouraging to see. Uh-huh. Uh, I would say the best thing in this for me, uh, outside of that, of course, is I actually do like the, as much as they fucked it up, I like the idea of the ethromancy. Uh, I mean, as you said, if that was your baseline, like there wasn't avatar abilities, there wasn't the raise abilities, any magic was done through this system, then you'd have a baseline for power that you could go off of and it would seem much better. Right, because you don't have that point of comparison of, but my buddy who ex- like invested as much as I did is getting much better dividends. Oh yeah, especially... At character creation, yes, the, the amount that you put into one thing, because it's cheaper for Ethromancy to be like two versus three character points to get a level, but if I get seven levels in one thing at character creation as an avatar versus seven levels spread out over four different things as an Ethromancer, the Ethromancer's like, I can barely function and do something that I want to do. And the other guy's like, I am a literal god in whatever I chose right. to do. You need, you're going to have very bad stats across the board. Your your primal aspects are going to be very weak except for, like, affinity. And then you're <laughs> dumping all of your other resources into just sort of playing catch-up. Up. Yeah. yeah. So I like the Ethromancy system. I think the way it binds things together is interesting. Uh, I like freeform casting systems. It just does not belong in the system that is presented with the other stuff. Absolutely. I super, super agree with that. I think that, especially if you have like the right agreement with the group to explore that type of thing, very much like a game of Mage, that can be a lot of fun. It can be a great way to express creativity. It just... <laughs> You know, so much is in the execution, and this book did not execute very well. Uh, speaking of not executing very well, what's the worst thing in this book for you? I, that's not even a fucking contest. <laughs> it's not just the weird fetish stuff, but specifically the sexy children thing. That is fucking <laughs> horrible. And if you need me to explain why, I, I, I can't. That's <laughs> I don't have, don't. I do not have time to go yeah. to the base principles exactly. that this would require. Like I don't have time to explain decency and society to you. <laughs> uh, I mean that's fair. I knew that was coming. Yeah, I I can't not say that, leaving you with ostensibly the more difficult, worst uh, part. For me, outside of that, the worst thing for me in pretty much any book that comes down the pipe for us is when the book 
is unable to make me think, what do I do? Even games that have shit systems or weird settings that have crazy assumptions about stuff, if I can come away from reading the book and go, okay, but I know what a game of this looks like. Right. These are the types of stories this game wants to tell. These are the types of people the story want, or the game wants to tell stories about. That's useful. This book has probably about 100 pages that's just dedicated to story and GM stuff. Oh, yeah. And each turn is more confusing than the last. Like, how There's do I square... It's like, hey, man, uh, I've told you a lot about the world. This is sort of what I think you should do. Right. How do I square stand by me with the battle against light and dark and also rat men. Yeah. It has a section that is, here are some ideas for the angles of your game. Like maybe your PCs are chosen ones by the gods and they have to uh, go do some specific thing because they've been chosen to, or maybe they're in some town and a creepy thing is hunting them. And I'm like, okay, I, I get that, but none of it squares with the setting you've given me, and you've given me four different settings. Right. There's so much big, overarching, like, tonal and thematic stuff that the game keeps houndering, hounding on and hammering on, but you get no sense for what that actually means at the game table. It's especially bad given that, as I mentioned before, like, at least 80 to 90% of the things where it talks about what are like characters doing in a game is almost always taking place in a populated center in the real world, our world. And that means three fourths of your uh, player types can't be there. You can only have humans and it doesn't have almost anything to do with the rest of the shit you've given me. Right. It's really weird that most of the setting chapter is other places that aren't the real world but then they say the setting should be assumed to be the real world. Yeah, it's it's a very confused book. And that is my least favorite thing on there is just give me an idea and go with it. Don't be afraid of saying like, this is what my game is about. Because they were like, oh, this is sort of what the theme of the game should be. Uh, but also there's an entire other world and it's a fantasy setting. Uh, also, there's a whole other world and it's a weird subterranean setting oh there's another world by the way and you're like stop just how many just give me a setting and put out a supplement book if you want something else right so there you go that's our our best and worst quinn would you play 713 if i came up to you today and was like quinn i've got a game and i want you to be in it i'm gonna run it i know you often don't get to be a player i'm running 713 the cycle of existence Rules is written, I would not. I would definitely play that if someone were taking these elements or some of these ideas and spinning them into something that is the sort of weird, zany, sort of pseudo-philosophical premise this book gives. But there's so many sevens and thirteens. <laughs> and This cycle of existence. The, Too many sevens and thirteens. The, the systems, they build off of that are sometimes very disappointing. So if someone were doing it in another thing, yes, as written, I'll take a hard pass. Okay. How about you? Would you play 713, Cycle of Existence?
I would have to give this a pass. It doesn't give me anything that I need enough to justify it. Because the rules are fucking weird enough. We didn't even get into... There's whole separate rules for actions and reactions and... Like, yeah, in the in the combat system, it is a very weird, fucked up system. Damage calculations are super weird. Oh it's... yeah, the damage is calculated on like how heavy your weapon is, and then what type of damage it does. But then also your strength, and then also another factor: the weapon quality. Oh yeah, the weapon quality. It's like, oh, is your my weapon is big and does slashing damage, but also it's. Uh, not good so i've got a minus two but i had a plus two from slashing and you're just like i can't every calculation is fucked up we we talked for an hour and a half about this game and there's still so much weird stuff we didn't even touch on oh god it is it's ridiculous so yeah i would i would have to give a pass because i can find other games with interesting flexible casting systems that don't require me to deal with so many sevens and thirteens exactly uh, so thank you so much for listening. We are fucking fuck us gonna make characters in this now. Oh god damn it. Uh so if you want to hear that, we've got our bonus content. If you go to patreon.com slash system mastery, you support us at a dollar or more, you unlock our bonus content for this. Uh you're gonna get all of those characters. If you're at two or more, you also unlock the bonus content. For Expounded Universe, our Star Wars novel discussion podcast. So you get, for $2 an episode of System Mastery, you get six episodes a month for about $4 a month extra. Plus you support us, you help me out, you help Jeff out with his wee bitty baby. The wee baby sage needs your money. I need your money, please. I'm so hungry, I'm a baby. Oh. Oh, oh. (laughs) so you can go there do that and of course you can find us on all of the social medias at system mastery we're twitter we're facebook we've got r slash system mastery subreddit we have our own discord you can find pinned to our twitter account uh all of that and more you can also email us if you want to system mastery at gmail.com and quinn Would you like to plug your socials at all? I would. So I am most active on Twitter at MonkeyPieQuinn. That is M-O-N-K-I-P-I-Q-U-I-N-N. You can find an interesting mix there of my like game design thoughts, some thoughts on uh, social justice, and then just a lot of shit posting. So much shit posting. You guys, a lot. If you like tweets that say things like, that say things like Benedict Cummings Batch. Well, then, you're in the right place. Boy, howdy, do I have an account for you? Uh, you can also follow us uh, on Twitter at Swallows of South for the Swallows of the South official Twitter account. We also have a Swallows of the South Discord, which can be found in the description of just about any episode of Swallows of the South. And if you are interested in listening to Swallows of the South, having heard both Joe Set and now myself guesting on the show, and you're interested in hearing the two of us, John, and the wonderful Chanel playing a game of Exalted, I recommend that you start with the Ashen Mask and the Dream Eaters of the Hidden City arc. It's a self-contained story. It's John's entry point. And that way, uh, it should give you a taste for whether or not it's something that's up your alley. There you go. 
And uh, we will be back, of course, in another couple weeks. But until that time, you guys have a good one.